Welcome to another edition of the Savvy Citizen Podcast. I'm Joshua Braswell. In this episode, Elizabeth McGee and I will be talking to local historian and author Robert Carpenter about the historic Coyle Homestead in Gaston County. We'll discuss its annual open house event that's returning for the first time since COVID. Hello, this is uh, Joshua Braswell. Um, I am here with uh, co-host Elizabeth McGee again. Hi. Hello again. <laughs> and uh, today we have um, historian and author and uh, man of many talents, uh, Robert Carpenter, on the show again um, to talk about the Hoyle House. It's my understanding that the um, annual open house is happening on September 10th. That's correct, yes, from it's 9 to 1. Is this the first one since the pandemic? It is the first one, and we're calling it a bare-bones opening because we just haven't had the opportunity to fully prepare like we had in the past. And so, But we're going to be opening it. Uh, folks will be able to tour the house. Uh, there'll be folks there to answer questions and talk to people. Uh, we will just not have all the full affair that we've had in the past. Robert, can you explain a little bit about your relationship to the Hoyle House? How, how did you get involved with it, and what do you do in relation to the house? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I have always been involved in history, mm-hmm. local history. I do genealogy. I teach genealogy classes at Gaston College. And so I relate back to, to the Hoyle family, to Peter Hoyle, the pioneer. Uh, so I've always had an interest there. I'm also on the Gaston County Historic Preservation Commission, uh, which, of course, looks at historic structures and uh, validates them and designates them uh, as historic structures in the county area. And we've designated the Hoyle House in the past. Uh, In fact, I wrote the historic sketch that's with that particular structure. Uh, I've done a number over the years, but that's one that I did. And uh, so I've been vitally involved in learning about this house and learning about the family. And uh, a number of years ago, uh, in fact, I got off the phone with her just a little bit ago, Barbara Gutierrez, uh, sold the house to the Hoyle Historic Homestead, which is what we call ourselves. And uh, we're a tax-exempt organization. And so I've been on that board off and on for a number of years uh, trying to preserve it to the very best of our abilities, uh, and to market it as a place where folks can learn and observe how life was back in the past. I have so many questions because I really have an interest in like museums and preservation and conservation. But first, I want to start with, so you're a historian. What does the research look like for a, a place like the Hoyle House, how did you come to know all of this information about it? Like, where are you going to find your your information? Lots of hard work, long <laughs> hours. Uh, unfortunately, they never really um, told us a lot about that house, they meaning the people that lived in it, and so we've had to research uh, lots of places. We research, of course, at the courthouse and the archives in Raleigh, mm-hmm. uh, family papers uh, have been, to some extent, helpful 
Uh, so a lot of the and when you work, say family papers, are you talking about like letters yes, and private collections that can uh-huh. be located like uh, old, old, old receipts? Yes, <laughs> yes. But you see, they didn't keep too much of that at yeah. this particular house. And also, it seems like a lot of that stuff would have gotten thrown away. It has uh, in the past, and so, but you see, the the house has a unique history because of the unique architecture, which may be a question you have a little later on. Mm-hmm. And so we had some interest in that from the state people and from folks all over the country, frankly, about the nature of that is architecture of that house mm-hmm. and its historic nature. Plus, the pioneer of the family, Peter Hoyle, was one of the first settlers west of the Catawba River. Mm-hmm. And so... The, you know, it, when when folks wrote about it first, they said he built that house. Mm-hmm. And that would be a wonderful thing had he done that. However, <laughs> it's taken years and years of us research, uh, of us researching to prove that he actually did not build that house. Uh, and it, the land where that he owned uh, is not underneath where that house is located. How did you figure that out? That was difficult. Uh, <laughs> we've had lots of folks say that that uh, that that it was his house, mm-hmm. of course. Uh, but what we did was we went back to the original land grants, and then we platted them, mm-hmm. and then we overlaid those plats onto uh, Google Earth, onto GIS tax maps, mm-hmm. and we were able to determine that the line of Peter Hoyle's land Mm -hmm. and the land that the house sat on uh, is a few hundred feet, a few thousand feet, maybe a little bit more, uh, to the east of where the house sits. The house was, though, on the land of John Hoyle, who received a 1765 land grant next to his father's property. Mm -hmm. And so... Therefore, you know, that's how it became Hoyle's. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he owned that land, and either he built that. We don't even know who built the house. How's that for not knowing oh, what's wow. going on? Uh, because, <laughs> you know, they didn't write it down, and right. they, didn't, they didn't do like, you know, the, the Ryan House, the Thomas Ryan House in Stanley where they put it in the chimney, 1799. They didn't do that for us. Oh, yeah, us. that would have been helpful if they just wrote it on the wall, huh? Uh, yeah, or something <laughs> like that. It's done something like that, or Cornerstone or John something. John Hoyle was here, yes. 17, what, what year would it have been? Could have been 65. 1765. Yeah, that would have been great but they didn't do that yeah and so can we well, back up a second before we move on you mentioned land grant i something sparked in my mind when you said that was that a government program at the time it was a is a it was a money-making operation okay but it was also a governmental operation it was run by the king of england mm-hmm. the king of england owned all the land that the british claimed in america mm-hmm. and so therefore he uh, had people who would sell that land the money eventually would eventually go to him, but it went through the government, and so the the land was. A lot of people people think that land grants was given to people. Mm-hmm. It wasn't. They paid for that land. Okay. People paid for it, and Peter Hoyle paid for that land. He got a five hundred acre grant uh, in fifty four, seventeen fifty four. He got two grants, mm-hmm. one for five hundred acres and one for three hundred acres. Uh, and so, but he paid for that land, and the land was a function of colonial government. Now, when the revolution occurred, the state took over granting land. And so you have state grants, land grants, and this would be called a king's grant. Interesting. So this was a way to make money, but also, I assume, 
populate the United States with English settlers. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And to give, give them an incentive to get on the boat and come over here, I guess, right? Well, and they, and some, they had companies and some individuals who actually organized uh, migration, immigration-type uh, groups who would come over. They would, they would get ships, you know, and, and come over together as a group. Mm-hmm. Uh, one was at New Bern, North Carolina. You probably may be familiar with that. That was settled by Swiss, New Bern, Bern, Switzerland. And oh, my gosh, you know I've never made that. Connection, made that connection in my mind. Yes. <laughs> so it was, and it was a, it was agreement uh, by the King of England, I think Queen maybe at that time, uh, with these these entrepreneurs who were trying to get folks uh, to have their own land and get out of Europe and mm-hmm. find a new beginning. And so, and so yeah, it was very typical as a way of of not only making money but primarily populating mm-hmm. uh, British America. Yeah, I feel like. When I've heard about land grants in the past, it was in the context of Native American reservations and like today trying to document who owns what land. And I know part of that involves Native Americans buying and selling their ancestral land to and from the government. Uh, So that's an interesting side of it too, where it's the, you know, English settlers getting land grants. Interesting. And of course, Peter Hall was a German. So, yeah. so being German, you know, but he was coming to England and uh, English uh, territory, mm-hmm. and so he uh, he purchased from the North Carolina colonial government, mm-hmm. which was uh, you know pre United States, pre United States. Yeah. Yes, interesting. The the Hoyle House it has the distinction of being the oldest house in Gaston County. Is that right? That is correct. And so, what was the architectural curiosity about it well, let me go back was it the architecture that made it stand out as the is that how you were able that's, to that's identify one of the things it? and one of the things that did uh, sorry but, for interrupting but it was one of the also one of the things that limited our one of the things that stopped us in realizing that peter hoyle didn't build the house oh you see the architecture so we don't know exactly when the house was built mm-hmm. uh we know that either john hoyle built it shortly after he received that land grant or we think more likely when he deeded his, that house, his, his home place track, in 1794 to his son Andrew, that we feel more likely that Andrew built that house because Andrew was in the process of getting married uh, to Catherine Wilfall, who was belonged to a rather prestigious family uh, in Lincoln County at that time, the Wilfall family, mm-hmm. Germans, but still very prestigious. And so... It would have been logical that he would want to build a very nice big house for her. Mm-hmm. So um, it is again. Historians have said in the past, and it's got printed up. And when you print it, you know, it makes it true. Uh, <laughs> that's why I do books. You know, you print them, and everybody believes them. But, uh, but it's been stated that it's the oldest house in Gaston County uh-huh. uh, because it was thought to have been Peter Hall's house. Since it's not Peter Hall's house, is it still the oldest house in Gaston County? Right now, it probably is the oldest house in Gaston County based upon the historical research that we've been able to do uh, with the Gaston County Historic Preservation Commission. Mm -hmm. The next one would be the Thomas Ryan that has its uh, date of of building, a building date uh, etched into the brick wall there on the Stanley Road. But uh, so, yeah, we think it is. Now, to go back to the architecture. German-style log corner post 
construction. Corner post construction meant that they put four posts up at the four corners of the house, erected them straight up. They did diagonal boards into those posts to hold them up, and then they inlaid those walls with logs. We think typically of an old house of being a log house. It was a log house, yeah. but it was not a typical log house. A log house is when you lay hogs, logs, not hogs, logs horizontally, <laughs> and you and you you dovetail the joints at the end, uh-huh. and then you chink them together with chink them with with mud and like and Lincoln logs, kind like of like Lincoln logs mm-hmm. exactly. All right, this was not that way. It was the corners are straight up. The corners are not perpendicular like that like 90 degrees not not 90 degrees because you've got a log there that goes straight up and so it goes in and it's it it's not exactly a corner in the four corners of that house which is unique the the um but the house itself uh was was built very large it is a 25 by 30 foot house now, we know most of the earliest settlers built rather small, humble dwellings. Mm-hmm. Log houses with the easiest thing to do was cut down trees, get logs, stack them on each other, notch them, and, uh, and, and, and put, them, put them together like that. But this house was built, designed on the ground. The corners of where the connections between the, the, the post uh, is located uh, is etched with Roman numerals. Oh. So so they actually went through and designed the house with the Roman numerals and then connected and joined the house. And so it was done in a very sophisticated manner. Another reason why we think maybe Andrew Hoyle was the one mm-hmm. that actually built the house. And is that why it's lasted so long? So why aren't there more old houses like this? Fortunately, it hasn't burned. <laughs> that's usually what happens to old houses. That's a big one with wood, with wood timber. <laughs> and, and, you know, we can't say it wasn't mm-hmm. uh, damaged by termites because it definitely was. Okay. So when we acquired it, we realized that we had some real serious problems with some of the walls, and we actually had to rebuild some of the walls mm-hmm. in order to shore them up to secure them because it's built right on the ground. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you have very little crawl space underneath that house. So... Now I want to talk about conservation a little bit. So when you are reconstructing parts of the house, addressing termite damage, how are you going about that? Are you trying to replicate the building methods that might have been used in the time period, or are you just sticking drywall over it and not attempting to blend in your reconstructions with the rest of the house? All the above. Okay. What you try to do is you, tr- you first of all, we had advice from the State Department, State of Archives, the mm-hmm. Preservation Department. SHPO is what it's called today. That's and a great name. I know. <laughs> I, you know, SHPO is what we call it. I don't even know what it stands for anymore. <laughs> but, uh, and so what they would, da- they would tell us, they said, okay, you've got to make sure that you maintain the historic integrity of the house, the but, building but materials, the like, design, oh, okay. et cetera. So when you look at it, it's not like you're going to see a brand-new addition that looks like a very modern... And you don't see drywall. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so what you do is whatever you, you do to shore it up. Mm-hmm. If you had termite damage and the thing's going to fall down, you got to fix it. Yeah. So you fix it, and if you put whatever you put in there to fix it, you've got to cover it up so that people don't see it. Uh-huh. 
to make it secure, to make it so that it will not fall down. But then what they do see has got to be historic. So we have uh, some plexiglass inside showing the actual walls, the way the logs are in, in there. We have some other areas where you can actually see the logs, upstairs especially, the, the outside uh, the walls of where it, what it looks like, so that uh, we can actually preserve the house and teach it as a, as a unique uh, method to build houses. This is the only, to go back to your original question, this is the only house of this type of construction currently known south of Maryland. Oh, my goodness. So it's very, very unique in that sense. There are a few in Maryland, Delaware, Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's any in Virginia anymore. I think at one time there was one. And this type of architecture is unique to where the Hoyles came from? It's unique German. Okay. We haven't been able to answer that question yet. Okay. uh, Because we haven't been to where they live. We know where they came from. We know yeah. where they live. They lived in the Palatin at the Rheinfels area mm-hmm. uh, around a, a place called Meisenheim. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but we, we, we haven't really been able to document that part of it, but certainly it's probably a, either, either the Hoyles knew about this construction or they hired someone who knew about this construction. Oh, interesting. A German guy who knew about it. Yeah. So there are other buildings on the property? Yes. And do any of them have that same type of construction? No. No, there is a, a brick structure that's known as the well house, uh, and it was contemporary to early. We don't know if it's – it probably wasn't built when the house was built, but probably shortly thereafter. Uh, and uh, it's, it's a very nice little little house with a, a well, and it was used as a smokehouse mm-hmm. uh, pr- to preserve meat. There's a white building out also that has been preserved, and we really don't know what it was used for. Mm-hmm. We think, I think, <laughs> I think that it was used by L.L. L. Suggs, who acquired the property after the Hoyles left the property, uh, as a place where he put his spirituous liquors, because he <laughs> owned a distillery. Oh, okay. And he, in fact, he had, had a, a very nice, prominent distillery uh, in the area. And so there was a warehouse, a distillery warehouse, uh, we think on site, and if it was, then that may have been that building. If not, we're not sure what it was built for, but it huh. also is a very old old house as well. There was an original barn which fell down in the 1960s, uh-huh. and that but that site is located, and you can we can go to it, and we've done some archaeological work there around that site. Have you found like tools or utensils or farm equipment on the land? Yes, we found, uh, we found, you see, archaeologists, they look for stuff like plateware and mm-hmm. ceramics and stuff like that because that helps date yeah. the house. And so we've done a good bit of archaeological work around the whole house itself, the old barn area, and also just various places around on the property looking for anything that will help us date the house and date and, and also give us insight into what the people were doing, how they were living, who lived there, uh, et cetera. I was reading about the Hoyle House online. There's a Wikipedia page. I was look, reading about it, and I read this name, Rich Andrew. Who is that? <laughs> Can you explain who Rich a- Andrew, Andrew is? Hoy- a Rich Andrew, that we, which historians have referred to him as Rich Andrew because uh-huh. there were other Andrew Hoyles. Okay. Uh, John Hoyle's son, Rich Andrew. This was the one that John sold the land to when John moved over to Rutherford County. 
Uh, and so this Andrew, his son, bought the house in 1794. He lived until uh, 1870, excuse me, 1857, uh, a long time. He was a very prominent individual. Most of the time that he lived, this area was known as Lincoln County. Mm-hmm. And so he was a magistrate. Uh, he was also a senator for a while uh, in the state general assembly. He owned significant properties. He owned. He had four stores where he operated mercantile businesses. Uh, his last store was in Dallas, uh, the, the Dallas Hall store, uh, and so he accumulated significant property, land, and fame. He was well <laughs> known. Uh, throughout the United States and the state of North Carolina and the United States as a leader. He was a Whig, political affiliation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, that's why so much is known about him because he left this uh, very involved will uh, distributing his earthly possessions with his family. And you, we get an understanding of how much that it was just a huge amount of money that he had accumulated value of property mm-hmm. and what legacy did he have for the Hoyle house well his legacy for the Hoyle house was of course the building uh-huh. and he left it all to his son Caleb Wilfong mm-hmm. Caleb Wilfong Hoyle never married he was deaf but he was well educated he had a very nice signature <laughs> unfortunately Andrew feared justly so that people would take advantage of his son because of his disability. Mm-hmm. And so he tried, He created trusteeship of people to look after him. Uh, he he uh, gave Caleb Wilfong over 700 acres of land. Ownership uh, of the Hoyle store uh, in Dallas and part ownership of the other stores that he had, mm-hmm. even though he also said that he, they could liquidate them. Unfortunately, um, he was taken advantage of oh, uh, no. some people. And then the results of the Civil War meant that, in many ways, the, the affluence uh, disintegrated. Mm-hmm. And so the property was sold off. Uh, it was split into three tracks, three lots. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I've told you before, L.L. Suggs purchased the lot that the homestead was on. Right. Uh, Leroy Lee was his name, Suggs. Uh, and so the legacy that he leaves us is not only in the house and all that area there, that, but also in all the things that he did for the county and for the area. Let's imagine we're standing out in front of the Hoyle House. Will you take us on a tour? We're walking in the front door. What do we see? First of all, the front door does not face the main road. Huh. The front door faced the original road which is on the other side of the property. That road ran from the Tuckasegee Ford, which is now in Mount Holly, mm-hmm. uh, all the way over to, well, it ran to the Trine Courthouse, which is at Trine School, which is an early historic site as well. So you're on that front porch, mm-hmm. all right, and you look out and you see the road out there and people were passing by. The store was located on the beside the house. Oh, so that's not there anymore. The store is gone. Okay. Yep. So there, this would have been a, a area with several buildings and people oh, living nearby. Lots of people, lots of buildings. Okay. We, we haven't uncovered all the buildings. We don't know. We've gotten some pictures and we have some idea, uh, but we don't know all of it. 
So so you and you walk you turn around, you walk in the house. Uh-huh. Originally the house, you could walk from the front door to the back door. It's straight through. Mm-hmm. But that was changed. Uh, Andrew Hoyle apparently remodeled the house probably in the 1820s to make it a center hall house. A center hall meaning you have a center hall and then you have rooms on each side instead of just walking into an open room. Uh-huh. Uh, make a long story short, the the upstairs has been very uh, has been changed very very little. Some of the original floorboards we think are still there wow. in that house. Uh, the the one on the first floor has been de- termite damaged, etc. And see, we've had to replace that floor. Mm-hmm. It had an original chimney on the right as you walked in. Now you have two chimneys on, not two chimneys. You have two fireplaces on the right. You, they divided that room into two rooms and put a uh, fireplace in each one of those rooms. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, and you have it's very federal style architecture inside with wainscoting and uh, uh, other other architectural features, mm-hmm. uh, cornice and stuff like that. Uh, so. And then what what they also did was they added a kitchen to the back of the house. When I say the back, again, that's the part of the house that you see from the road. Mm-hmm. This was a log structure, a regular log structure so originally. The, the kitchen was uh, totally separate. It was a separate okay. building, yes. Originally, it was a separate building. I guess that makes sense if, you know, fire prevention is, uh, <laughs> if you're living in the well, I guess it wasn't really the middle of nowhere at that time. There was sounds like there were a bunch of people around, but still, kitchens are probably the most likely to catch fire, right? <laughs> right. Oh yeah, that was that was one of the, they they had separate kitchens in almost all the old homes at that time, or they cooked outside. You oh. know, yeah. Uh, and then they had a dog trot, which connected the main house uh, to to that other building back there, which uh-huh. we're which we uh, seems like was the kitchen. Area, you know, a lot of these things we are speculating on based upon the evidence that architectural historians have given us, what they've found, what they've seen, mm-hmm. uh, and stuff like that. So, uh, and then we have three porches: the original front porch, mm-hmm. and then you have an east side porch and a west side porch. That is the correct number of porches, <laughs> I believe. If there are four porches, that would be even better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess, and that would be a really nice, because they're, you know, I guess I'm wondering about temperature regulation so long ago. Clearly, you know, if we've got a central fireplace, that's going to keep the house warm in the winter. But in the summer, I imagine it's it gets difficult to stay cool. Very difficult. Mm-hmm. Air conditioning did not come on in 1835. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> not. But you had to think of other ways to keep cool. So having lots of porch space makes having sense porches to me. And, and opening all the windows mm-hmm. and having windows across from each other so that it, the air flowed through them. Uh-huh. What breeze there may have been. And it was on a hill. So there should have been a breeze at least uh, some of the time on that hill. And it usually is a little breeze out mm-hmm. there. So how many people would have been living in this house. It sounds like the Hoyles were an affluent family, so I imagine they maybe had staff or, you know, multiple generations of a family living there at one time. Mm-hmm. Yes. They, they uh, of course, and again, you've got the house, you've got the store, which is no longer there, uh-huh. uh, and then you have 
the the well and probably not the white building yet when when Andrew was there. Mm-hmm. So you had Andrew and his wife uh, had a, ten children, I think it was. Oh my gosh! And so that kept them busy. Unfortunately, a number of them did not reach adulthood. Okay. A number of them died young, and so then they also had uh, enslaved people who worked there on the farm and who worked inside the house. Uh, in 1850, uh, Andrew Hoyle was listed with 40 enslaved people, male, female, children. And so if you can imagine the, the, how that might have been with lots of people, mm-hmm. and you had, you had people going from the store to the house, the house to the store, you had, uh, you had horses, stables, the, the, the uh, barn area. Uh, you had people going up and down the road. So it was a busy place, mm-hmm. and it was probably a loud place, mm-hmm. you know, with, with all the children and uh, folks. Uh, we do not know where the enslaved people's quarters were. Mm-hmm. We, we, we know the approximate location of where their graveyard was. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, it is still an area that can be researched. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we don't know how large. We know that he started out with one enslaved person in 1800. It went to about 40 uh, in 1850. Uh, and so he had he had all these people doing all these things. One was a blacksmith mm-hmm. who was on property. The blacksmith shop was located right beside the road. Made it convenient, didn't it? Mm-hmm. Stop in, get your horse uh, shoes done, uh, and uh, so you had you had a lot of, of action going on. Mm-hmm. When when he died, he he um, in his will he mentions a thrashing machine. Mm-hmm. We would call that a combine today. Mm-hmm. He also mentioned his cotton machine, mm-hmm. a cotton gin. So you see, there were lots of stuff. Yeah, lots of stuff going on. Lots of folks coming and going, lots of uh, interactions. Uh, and, you know, you, you got to think that the family cooked their food there, probably carried it over to the, to the store, you uh-huh. know, across the way. And uh, uh, it, was just, it was just, you know, 50 feet mm-hmm. the store was from the, from the house. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious to know if y'all are doing any research today about those enslaved people and trying to follow up on exactly where the gravesite is or, um, you know, if you're a genealogist, um, trying to figure out the legacy of these people. Y- yes, we are working very diligently on that. And one of our board members, Mike Peters, and also Lucy Penning, another board member, have worked uh, very hard on trying to reconstruct as much information as we can uh, on the enslaved people there. We have the census record. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, uh, we don't have people's names until the 1863 tax list, mm-hmm. which actually listed all the enslaved people by name and age, which is very helpful. That is helpful. In, in, uh, uh, that's 1863. Uh, so prior to that time, you have people as uh, statistics, but within an age bracket. So what we've tried to put together, we've tried to put together as much as we can to learn about who these people were, mm-hmm. where they lived, where they moved afterwards. Mm-hmm. We know that when Caleb Wilfong resided in the house uh, in 1870, uh, there were a number of, of African Americans residing with him in the house. Mm-hmm. A number of them were also deaf. Oh, wow. 
unique. Uh, we're not see. We're not sure. We don't know that story. There has to be a story there. Yeah. With, with that, uh, the fact that that there were at least two that were deaf that were residing in the house with him, uh, with his stepmother, uh, Matilda, mm-hmm. uh, who and and he since he was not married, he didn't have a family, mm-hmm. uh, and so you had some other people living there too. Uh, you had a guy who was the blacksmith mm-hmm. living in the house, and he was a free person of color, mm-hmm. and he was living there in 1860, uh, uh, and then in 1870 he was gone, but in 1860 he was living there in the house. How many bedrooms are in the house? Would people have been, like, bunked up together in the same room, or would you, I mean, did they even, like, use bedrooms the way that we think of bedrooms today? Because I know space would have been limited with that many people. There were there are three rooms mm-hmm. in the main house. There are three rooms upstairs. One room is huge, mm-hmm. and it's, it has a fireplace in it. Uh, downstairs, there would have been one, two, three, four rooms mm-hmm. in the center hall when Caleb Wilfong and when Andrew was there. And so, you would have people bedded down everywhere. Yeah, <laughs> especially the babies when the when the children were there growing uh-huh. up. You would have had multiple children sleeping in multiple rooms. Uh-huh. Uh, and most of them were what we call straw ticks. You know, you had put straw mm-hmm. in and you put covered it over with uh, material, mm-hmm. uh, cloth material, and that's what you slept on. Maybe you had a bedstead uh-huh. for it to sit on. Maybe you didn't. Huh. The children may not have had. Most of the adults would have had a bed. Uh, I'm trying, I don't remember how many bedsteads were in his estate sale, but there were a number. So he had a number of beds in the house. But then you got to remember, that was at the end of his life, and all of his children were grown, and he had great-grandchildren by that time because mm-hmm. he lived to, uh, into his uh, late 80s. That's quite old for that time period, isn't it? Yes, it is, yes. Just saw John Torbett downstairs a while ago. He sponsored a bill through the legislature uh, giving a grant to the Hoyle Historic Homestead to construct restrooms at the facility. Excellent. And so we are in the process of doing that. What we're doing, again, to keep with the historic nature, is we are going to construct a building which sat at the exact place of the gas house. The gas house was built uh, in the early 1900s, uh-huh. and it created gas to power lamps in the house. It mm-hmm. was the precursor of electricity. Interesting. And so we are we're going to use that as our restroom building. It so is located the, the sight line of when you're looking at the whole landscape. It'll still be a historic. It'll landscape. be a historic. It'll be, and we're we're trying very hard, even mm-hmm. though we don't have anything other than some early pictures mm-hmm. of what it looked like. And so, but we're trying to make sure that we replicate that as much as possible. It was located between the white building. Uh, and uh, the the well house. So we're going to be putting that there. Uh, we're hoping to hire a contractor within the next few months to move forward with that, and it's exciting times. That and is fantastic. Congratulations. Yeah, cool. yeah. We're, we're excited, and we're working hard to try to get there. Why do you think it's important for people to come out, like during the uh, annual open house, and see the house and understand the hit more about the history of the house and as of the county as a whole. It's important for all of us to understand our history. If we don't understand our history, we don't understand why we are who we are today, which is why I teach genealogy too. You know, you understand yourself by understanding 
who your ancestors were and how you became who you are. That's true with America. That's true with the Hoyle House. And one of the things that we're trying to do, many of the things that we're trying to do, is to reconstruct and preserve the lifestyle and the lives of these people. Mm -hmm. They are, yes, they're Hoyles, but they could have been Smiths or Joneses. Mm -hmm. Most of the people lived similarly during that time. Uh, And so you learn from how they lived, what they did, how they made their money, where they went to church, Mm -hmm. All of those things are critical in understanding the great nation that we have become. Mm -hmm. Because at that time, we were not necessarily the great nation that we are today. Mm -hmm. And and so it's important for all of us to learn about our history and to appreciate our history and to preserve it as much as possible. Well said. Is there anything that we didn't ask that you'd like to add? Probably, but I'm not sure I can remember what you've asked or what I've said or anything else. But it's been a joy. I do appreciate the opportunity. Certainly. I certainly want to welcome anyone to come out uh, on September the 10th from 9 to 1. That's my advertisement. But uh, it will not be uh, the full open house, Uh but it will be an opportunity for the first time in two years, maybe three, for folks to come in to go through the house to talk to folks. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being on with us today. Thank you very much. Thank Appreciate you. it. Thank you.